Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You can get embroiled or murdered in the whole discussion around, you know, which is the right technology. At the end of the day, you need to say, what can I do now? What what is there that is that is available to me to do something about this in the relatively short term? And I think we're moving into this stage of people actually doing things as opposed to talking about things. Hello and welcome to the Aranax Show, a podcast from Fathom World and me, Greg Eason. This is a show that looks at the latest events that are transforming the maritime shipping and ocean space. Shipping is based around a very big and a very expensive asset, the ship. It's the largest frequently built man-made object on the planet, and it's mobile. Around the seas, there's about 100,000 of them, and all of them emit engine exhausts into the air. Most of us know that this is a problem, and one that is being addressed in various corners of the shipping industry, whether the International Maritime Organization or an increasing number of consortia and state-backed projects with technology firms, universities, and even ship owners looking at decarbonisation challenges. But there are actually not that many ship owners, or at least as far as I can see, who actively invest in the technologies of decarbonisation. Yes, they'll be part of consortia, offering vessels as testbeds, issuing letters of intent and MOUs, the paperwork of the potential. But there's not many actually putting money up front into technology ideas. So Ardmore Shipping's recent announcement that it's taking a one-third stake in a joint venture does stand out. The company is E1 Marine, a venture looking to marinise technology that already exists ashore to enable ships to convert methanol to hydrogen and power fuel cells. The partners in the company are called Element One and Maritime Partners, a hydrogen tech specialist and a maritime financial firm based in the United States. In a minute, we'll hear from Ardmore's Chief Operating Officer Mark Cameron about the venture and why a tanker owner chose such unique aspects of clean tech to focus on. Before that, a quick peek at ship's main engines. The debate has already intensified over the way that shipping will be powered as it pushes itself and gets pushed down the road to lower CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions. And the debate is already as political as it is passionate. Opinion and comment are flooding social media if you care to look about the merits of ammonia, methanol, biofuels, LNGs and the benefits of transition fuels and the risks of ending up with stranded assets. The debate has escalated quickly, especially as many of the fuels are not available. It takes only a minute to have an opinion about a fuel, but it takes a lot longer, five years perhaps or more, to develop and have ready the engine that burns these new fuels. Let's not forget, and I've said this often, large engines are or used to be called cathedral engines. They're so large you could walk into them if they were opened up. Last week, Man Energy Solutions in Denmark demonstrated its latest engine. Normally, it does this kind of thing by inviting potential customers and the licensees who will eventually build the engine to a demo day at the company's test facilities in Copenhagen. This time, for obvious reasons, it was online. It's not the same thing, but then they did have over a thousand people logging on, they said. Now, this new engine is not burning a new fuel as such. It's an LNG dual-fueled engine. 
nor is it man's first dual-fuel engine that already has the more expensive MEGI engine, as it's called. It's a diesel engine, as opposed to the Ottocycle engine, which is what this new engine is. I'm not going to get into the differences between the two here. Suffice to say, it's somewhat similar to the difference between a diesel car and a petrol car. But during the presentation about the new engines, Bjerne Foldager, VP and head of two-stroke business, pointed out that the company has engines on the market already able to burn a range of fuels and is working on an ammonia-fueled engine. If a fuel is commercially attractive, we have committed ourselves to find the best technical solution to utilize uh, these fuels. We have already in our portfolio the MEGI LNG engines, we have the etane engine, we have the methanol engine and also the LPG engine in our dual fuel portfolio. Combined, we have already achieved more than 1.7 million running hours, all successful, safe, reliable on uh, the new fuel, on the, on the uh, respective gas. We also have to the, to the far right of this picture here, we have the ammonia engine. It's green and this is because it's not in service yet. It will only come out in 2024. Uh, and it's, of course, also because it's a green engine. So this is our comprehensive portfolio of uh, two-stroke engines. As I said, this new engine of MANS is primarily aimed at the LNG carrier market, which is quite buoyant, but certainly competitive. For various technical reasons, the Autocycle engine is cheaper. MAN has been losing out in this corner of the market to one of its main competitors, WinGD, the Swiss-based Chinese-owned engine maker. Both this MAN engine and the equivalent engine of its competitors have one issue which critics have been shouting about for a long time. It's called methane slip, and is when some of the natural gas fuel, which is mostly methane, goes through the engine, remains unburned, and then goes into the atmosphere with the engine exhaust. Pound for pound, the comparative impact of methane is 25 times greater than CO2 over a 100-year period, according to reports within the IPCC. It stays in the atmosphere for about 12 years. But something called exhaust gas recirculation on an engine has a number of benefits. Not only does it improve performance, but it also helps with the methane slip. During the same demonstration of its new autocycle engine, Man's head of two-stroke promotion, Thomas Hansen, explained the benefits of EGR, a technology that has now gained maturity in the industry. He said that when Man tested the system on its new engine, it achieved the required limits of NOx emissions, that's the reason why EGR was first invented, but had other benefits too. Recycling the exhaust into the engine air brings in CO2, which helps reduce knocking and improves combustion performance but also the methane slip. During these uh, 600 tests we performed on uh, our test engine, we also tested EGR. And uh, we found that in addition to the very obvious effect that EGR has, that is to uh, make the engine tier three compliant in fuel oil mode, it also has some very profound effects on the combustion in the autocycle gas engine. It simply um, lowers the, um, rate, the pressure rise rate. Uh, and it does that by introducing more CO2, higher CO2 content into the um, cylinder. And uh, with this, we can counteract some of the Achilles heels of the autocycle engine, for instance, knocking. Let's dig a little bit more into that. 
the graph here in your right hand side, it shows uh, curves describing cylinder pressure. On the vertical, on the horizontal axis, we have crank angle, uh, and on the vertical axis, we have pressure in bar. And if you look at the four curves from the left to the, to the right, we are adding more and more EGR for each step, and you can see that the pressure reduces. It is because that the pressure rise rate is lowered due to the higher CO2 content when we add more EGR. Thereby, we have improved the gas consumption with around 3% and the consumption in fuel oil mode with some 5%. We also found that it had a very good effect on the methane slip, and there are two reasons for that. You could say the first order effect is that if you increase your efficiency on an engine, then less fuel is slipping out into the atmosphere and, of course, thereby less methane slip. But there's also a second order effect, and that is that in the, in the, the exhaust gas, there is, of course, a certain amount of methane slip. And when you recirculate a large amount of the exhaust gas into the cylinder again, then that methane has a second chance to be combusted. Both of these uh, things works towards a uh, significantly lowered methane slip. It will never be as low as for the MEGI. By nature, the MEGI engine has more than 10 times lower methane slip than a two-stroke autocycle engine working in, in gas mode but it gets uh, us a certain portion of the way. It is a significant reduction of the methane slip. Thomas Hansen from MAN ES talking about using EGR to improve performance. While it looks like MAN's next engine is going to be the ammonia-fueled version, the company is active in a number of other projects and consortia developing new solutions to help with the desire for vessels to move off of traditional bunker fuels and find new propulsion and power sources with less harmful emissions. A year ago on this podcast, I spoke to MAN's head of two-stroke research, Brian Ostergaard Sørensen, about the company's interesting projects, and I'm hoping to have a catch-up with him again soon for a future episode of the Aronax Show to hear how a company that once had diesel in its name is speeding its transition along with the industry that is its customers. Now, back to that industry. As I mentioned earlier, ship owners have not been the first to actually do the research and development of new technologies, but things are changing. We can now see a number of owners either in projects or in state-funded consortia. Some of them, like Ireland's Ardmore Shipping, have taken a more commercial step and invested money in a new venture with partners, in this case forming E1 Marine with two American companies. I caught up with Ardmore's Chief Operating Officer Mark Cameron to ask why a tanker owner would be looking at investing in a technology that may be used ashore but still needs proving at sea. At the end of last year, we needed our own energy transition plan. We understand what's going on around us. Obviously, we've been involved in various forms and formats in, in helping to try to understand and thereby shape legislation. But really what, what we wanted was, well, what's our part in that? What's Ardmore doing for ourselves? And uh, we came up with an energy transition plan. And this um, E1 Marine is actually born out of that transition plan, which is a conscious um, uh, internal focus 
on um, saying what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Why did you think it was important to look at that step when you looked at your um, your plan, when you looked at your strategic plan um, with for Ardmore? Why do you think it was important to look at taking something like methanol, which we've seen is already a marine fuel, and converting it to hydrogen, which we already see a lot of projects looking at how hydrogen can be used in the marine environment and uh, with fuel cells, for example? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And, and there's probably a couple of angles to answer that. I mean, and, and the first is that, you know, we've chosen a commercial vehicle by which to to launch this. So, you know, at the, at the end of the day, we've we've both put money in. And of course, in doing that, we, we, we intend to commercialize this and sell it uh, the, the product into the into the broader market, which is perhaps a bold step, but it's not unique when you see a number of ship owners that have done this in the past in, in different areas, perhaps not so much in, in, in sort of the greenhouse gas uh, emissions uh, area specifically. Why did we choose this technology? We spent a lot of time researching and, and, and looking at where the, where the industry is going. And what we've said for a long time is that the generators are really the low-hanging fruit, the electrical generators on board ships. The, the main, uh, main engine propulsion space, certainly in the deep sea fleet, is a very crowded space. And I think the industry has to accept that we will be moving from a one-size-fits-all, or maybe one-and-a-bit sizes if you include LNG, um, that to, to a multiple um, kind of fuel strategy in future. And you can get embroiled or murdered in the whole discussion around, you know, which is the right technology. At the end of the day, you need to say, what can I do now? What, what is there that is, that is available to me to do something about this in the relatively short term? And I think we're moving into this stage of people actually doing things as opposed to talking about things. And we can talk about the legislative environment and EEXI and all the stuff that's coming down the track. And uh, at the end of the day, what we don't see is a lot of people saying, well, here are solutions that we can use. We looked at the landscape and we understand that ammonia may may well have a, a space and a, and a future in, in the, um, the marine market. And that's great. And the product that we've selected can, can reform ammonia. Uh, in the same way that it that it reforms um, hydrogen, uh, sorry, uh, methanol into hydrogen. The the point is that safety matters, and we know that uh, compressed hydrogen has a lot of complexities around it and a lot of a lot of limitations. Um, we know too that ammonia is not liked by low temperature PEM fuel cells. Um, so at the end of the day, the toxicity of ammonia is is a complication as well. So by looking at methanol, which already has an existing infrastructure and an existing operating environment on board, you've got a ready-made uh, carrier for the hydrogen. And let's not forget that ammonia ultimately is a carrier for hydrogen too. So if hydrogen is the end product, how do you get hydrogen on board safely? What we saw with this technology is it's something that creates low pressure, low volume hydrogen on tap, if you like, you know, ready, ready to flow when, when needed. And that's the big attraction here for us. Um, I'd also add that interestingly, um, this particular product combines 33% um, of its hydrogen uh, with water. 
So uh, not only is it a pure methanol um, uh, reformer, it also has 33% of the, the input stream from deionized water, which is a great advantage. It's a, it, 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 it's a compelling idea to use one fuel like this and then and create uh, the hydrogen. And as you mentioned, using it in um, auxiliary engines, in electrical generators and... Um, that low hanging that low hanging fruit as as you call it but it, it strikes me that a lot of the time that those generators would be used on board is when a vessel would be doing additional maneuvers or um if you've got um, a tanker or if you've got a, a vessel going into port that's when you tend to have the auxiliary engines being used for that surge of power perhaps or on a in a hotel load on a cruise ship i mean these are these are the kind of areas that you see this being used if, and instead of an auxiliary engine is it well we see i see we see multiple uses so let, let me not narrow it down to just just uh, what, what i'm referring to here but first of all let me say that our our fuel consumption on our generators is responsible for 25 percent of our greenhouse gas emissions so anything that we can do to reduce that is net benefit. Um, at the end of the day, it's the, you know, when you're transiting the Pacific uh, on any type of vessel, you've got a relatively static load, electrical load on the engine. And that could be a 30 day, 30 day voyage where, you know, the basic load on the generators is pretty much the same. So, you know, there's, there's a, there is um, a lot of time spent where this uh, this can fulfill that electrical need quite simply. Importantly, though, there's other areas and other sectors that are that are of interest to us. And one is the reefer load on container ships. And if you think about it, that um, the food industry um, probably has a pretty important objective to help reduce the carbon footprint in moving re refrigerated products from A to B. And again, the power that's consumed in in, in reefer boxes um, is both seasonal and directional. Uh, so we we believe that by powering uh, the reefer load on container ships uh, using a product like this, you can really help the the end user understand that their transport uh, component um, of, of of emissions is being significantly reduced um, through using sort of in this case, low carbon technology. I presume that you're looking at using this with a whole range of um, manufacturers of fuel cells, are you? It's, n it's not limited to one particular um, fuel cell maker. But how are you looking at getting that on board? What's the structure that you'll see usually being employed to actually get this on board a vessel? I'm guessing that you'd want to have some element of retrofitting onto existing ships. Um, with this as well as looking at new buildings? Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, I think the the idea here is that because it is modular, you can build it up into different sizes. And um, we understand that that space will be a consideration on, on, a, um, on a retrofit basis. Um, so we, we would have to look uh, at the logic or the reason that someone is retrofitting and EEXI is a possibility here. So there may be certain ships that are of, of an age where um, they need to do more. And in that case, this could be a possibility. Um, but let's not forget that this would be in replacing a generator. Um, we wouldn't just be looking to add another generator altogether. Um, so there would need to be a compelling reason to replace a generator. 
logically, I think um, in the small craft market, certainly within within what we see within the inland waterways within Europe, there's a big demand for for converting vessels um, because the hulls last so long. So the lifespan is 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 typically uh, double, if not triple that, that we would see within the, the deep sea fleet. Um, so certainly in the inland waterways within Europe, there are incentives, um, there are packages, and there is there is a motivation and a willingness um, to 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 move to um, cleaner technology. And of course, in this in this area, uh, you know, a vessel would would typically be re-engined maybe twice in its lifespan. Um, so there's a, there's a natural sort of um, market that that could be developed there. Um, also, with 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 our partner maritime partners in in the United States and with their footprint in the uh, towage and self-propelled uh, barge market, um, we know that there's a big change coming within the EU. Uh, sorry, within the US legislation there that's driving much tougher legislation, much tougher uh, focus on emissions, and to comply with that. Um, you need either very, very expensive engines or a completely alternative approach. I would imagine it has to go through a certain amount of classification, regulatory um, approval before it gets there. And then there's the commercializations. So do you see that the first vessels will be some of Ardmore vessels just to use it as a proof of concept even? Yeah, I think um, a couple of things there. uh, We've already initiated the process with the classification societies and with FLAG um for for uh, large scale um type approval um what we what we don't want and what we've been assured we won't see is you know a repeat of the ballast water treatment you know kind of debacle where we ended up with you know kind of type approvals being extremely slow and laborious uh, and i think the impetus that's that's being generated around um the importance of reducing emissions now and not waiting for this endless debate um, is really going to drive that 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 requirement to uh, to create a type approval in a, in a shorter time span. But let's let's just go back to what I said about safety. You know, um, we have to make sure that the reason why we do a type approval is to ensure that it is safe to operate. So I think that that is the the, the of paramount importance here. Um, where where it helps if to get this to market quickest, where it helps is is ships that are already burning methanol. And we are talking to to those owners and operators um, to to try to um, to demonstrate uh, the immediate value to them, and of course the shorter route to market by already having the infrastructure for methanol on board those ships. So um, that's some of our our initial thinking. Um, this technology has already been tried and tested. This is this is the beauty that we saw in it is that the marinization of it. Is, is going to be relatively simple um, because it's already been used in so many um, land-based applications, um, including road transportation and trucks, uh, which obviously have vibration and temperature difference and load demand differences. So, um, so we're certainly you know, positive that this, this will fit the bill. If you're putting something that's got um, another fuel, potentially, you know, you're going to have to have a methanol storage tank unless you've got a vessel as you say unless you've got a vessel that's already using methanol then you don't need to have the additional storage but you've got the need potentially for additional storage of methanol so are you looking at um, a package where you would have the capability to do methanol storage and the other question is, is relating to the hydrogen is the methanol 
um, being converted to hydrogen on demand, or is it a requirement that there has to be a small storage of hydrogen before it actually gets used in the fuel cell? The beauty of the system is that it's essentially hydrogen on demand and the, the system can be uh, paired to what the fuel cell needs. And of course, in this whole sequence of events, um, the end, you know, every, every every component within the power system looks at the component immediately ahead of it. So in this case, if the fuel cells demand um, is telling the hydrogen generator that it needs more hydrogen, um, then the reformer reacts. And the reaction times in these in this equipment is particularly quick. So we're not talking about time lags of minutes. So what we're doing is we have a small buffer tank of hydrogen, which is probably in the region of 150 liters of um, uh, volume of, of hydrogen. And uh, that buffer tank is sufficient then to provide the the surge demand or needs for from the fuel uh, fuel cell. Um, in terms of, of the methanol storage on board, yes, we'll, we'll look at um, where where possible, certainly, um, existing fuel tank conversion. Um, and I think that that would be, we would, we would anticipate that the fuel cell would run um, much of the time at sea, as much of the time as, uh, you know, as, it, as you have a diesel generator operating and the diesel generator then would take the peak loads. So essentially taking taking a tank, depending on the particular configuration, is not without the realms of possibility. Um, alternative to that, yes, there are other storage arrangements that we need to consider and look at, again, together with, with class societies. And going back to the modular form of this and part of the, the, the sort of ease with which you can adapt this, when you look at some of the exhaust gas scrubber modifications that took place in that sort of space around the, the, the stern or where you've got a, a mid-placed engine, um, there was an enormous amount of creativity went into creating structures there. So we know that that space can be utilized and it can be utilized more effectively. Um, so that would be sort of the eye that we've got on, on retrofit markets. Um, new builds, of course, are easier, you know, to kind of to design or to build this around. Um, but we're certainly not discounting the, the retrofit market at all. Mark Cameron, Chief Operating Officer from Ardmore Shipping, on the idea of promoting a solution to support the use of fuel cells instead of diesel generators or auxiliary engines on ships. What I subsequently asked him about was how the CO2 that is formed when methanol is reformed to hydrogen is used. The answer is it could be fed back into the system to help with the reduction of emissions compared to burning methanol in an internal combustion engine. But he also said that there's the potential to develop an onboard carbon capture and storage system. Now, that's nearly it for this episode of the Aronax Show. Just time for a short update from Nick Chubb at Thetius on some of the recent developments that are transforming the shipping, maritime and ocean industries. Thanks, Craig. Japanese carrier K-Line has announced it is launching a new carbon-neutral department to facilitate business development for net-zero CO2 shipping. The team will lead a carbon-neutral promotion group that is designed to work with businesses across the K-Line group and related companies. Stenobolk has launched a new concept design for semi-autonomous, zero-emission ships that can simultaneously carry dry and wet cargoes. The ships use a modular design, with each module carrying its own cargo and being entirely self-sufficient. The modules can be dropped off outside port limits and be picked up by tugs to decrease congestion, and the main vessels will use a combination of hydrogen and wind power for propulsion. 
Embattled Leosat operator OneWeb has agreed a $73 million deal with Intellion for the development of user terminals that will allow people on the ground or, or in the sea to access their network. This news came in the same week that Elon Musk's Starlink applied for an FCC license to connect their network to ships and trucks. Mitsui OSK Lines has announced a major update to their augmented reality navigation system that was developed in partnership with Furuno. The system is designed to help improve situational awareness on the bridge and has now been rolled out to 24 of their VLCC fleet. And lastly, the Singapore government is attempting to cement their place as the world's leading maritime startup hub by increasing the limits on their co-investment model for early stage startups from 50% to 70%. So a Singapore startup raising a $200,000 seed round will now only need to find $60,000 from private investors that have been pre-approved by Maritime and Port Authority and the government will throw in the rest. Big chap there, ending this episode of The Aaron X Show. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you fancy a chat, just give me a call or even join me on Monday evenings on Clubhouse if you can. I co-host a shipping and sustainability room discussions on Monday evenings so that anybody can take part. Until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>